We're throwing off the filters of tradition and culture to discover what the Bible really says about our relationships, relationships with God, with ourselves, and with others. Welcome to this episode of Relationship Truth Unfiltered. Welcome to a very special episode of Relationship Truth Unfiltered. I'm Julie Sedanko here with relationship expert Leslie Vernick and Neil Shorey, one of two lead pastors of the Edge Church near Chicago. Now, Neil is very passionate about helping the church at large become advocates and allies for victims of domestic violence. That passion really came about after Neil was caught in the middle of a national news story, one many of our listeners will remember. Neil was the pastoral marriage counselor for Drew and Stacy Peterson. Stacy went missing just days after telling Neil that Drew had confessed to her that he had killed his previous wife, Kathleen Savio. So I actually heard this story while watching Marsha Clark investigates the first 48 because I love true crime stories. And Neil appeared on that show. And I was so struck by his honesty and heartache when he was confessing to Marsha that he didn't have a clue how to handle something like this. Neil, thank you for being here and being willing to share your story. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so glad to be with you both. So take us back to that day. What did Stacy tell you specifically? And what were you thinking? Oof. It was the culmination of months of, of meeting with Drew and Stacy. Um, I, I met them both at the end of 2005, early 2006. And for the court over the course of about 18 months, I, I met with them sometimes individually, sometimes together. And I'll fast forward through through all of it. Um, most of it presented, according to Stacy, as just regular marriage issues. That's almost always how she talked about it. Uh, I realized I realized not too far into it that it was a lot more than that. Um, but I honestly just did not know what to do with these dynamics. Wasn't she asking you, Neil? Uh you know, if some of the stuff she was experiencing was normal, because she was trying to decipher that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. She, a lot of times she would just tell me, well, this, these are just normal marriage issues. And then she would describe something with just extreme jealousy and, and what I would describe as stalking behaviors by her husband, who was a police officer, a high ranking police officer in the area. So very not normal, but she wanted, she clearly was attempting to convey to me that it was normal. So I, I there were, there was a dynamic there that was, it was interesting to attempt to counter um, in a way that was respectful. And, and hopefully trying to get her to continue the conversation. So that's what I was attempting to do. The final meeting that I had with Stacy was at a Starbucks. We met at a Starbucks often. We met in the cafe, uh, the outside area, like with umbrellas and, and outside seating. And uh, she had called me uh, the day before and she said, Neil, by any chance, do you have any time to meet tomorrow morning? Normally she wouldn't have done that. And I just had this sense that there was something more serious going on. And I remember looking at my, my Outlook calendar and my computer and I actually had a morning availability. So I wrote her and I said, I said, yeah, we could meet it. I think it was like 8.30 we met. And so I, when I got there, she was sitting on the patio already and looked, looked pretty serious. She'd already gotten a drink and I said, hey, I'm just gonna run in and grab something, I'll be right back. So I came back out and sat down and for approximately 30 to 45 minutes, she really just kind of rehashed stuff that she'd always talked about before. You know, Drew is jealous, but it's because he loves me. Uh, but sometimes that's uncomfortable. He, he follows me. He calls me. And if I don't answer, he, he makes wild accusations that I'm having affairs and just all these things. And um, at one point, she looks at me and she said, I think I want to tell you something else. And I just remember thinking, that's weird. That's why we've been sitting here. But of course, I didn't say that. And I looked at her and I said, Stacy, this is your story. So whatever you want to share with me, you can. And if you don't want to share it now, that's okay. We can make another time to do it. And, and she sort of talked, kind of small talk a little bit longer. And suddenly she just blurted out. She said, Neil, he did it. And I just went, oh, he, I'm sorry, Stacy. he did what? And she said, Drew killed Kathleen Savio. And I just kind of gulped. And the reason I even knew that name is that I knew that Drew had been married before. I didn't know exactly how many times until meeting with Stacy, but Stacy was Drew's fourth wife. Kathleen Savio was Drew's third wife. 
He'd been married two other times before Kathleen. And Kathleen, according to stories in the area, died in a dry bathtub uh, with no cause. Uh, and that's how it was ruled by the medical examiner. And uh, by, by all accounts, there, there wasn't, they didn't really look into it that much. Uh, so she basically explained to me, I, I said, how do you know this? And she said, well, Drew and I always went to bed at the same time every night. Always did that together. And she said, I woke up in the middle of the night and I looked over and he wasn't there. And she said, I thought that was weird. So I walked around the house and looked for him and he wasn't there. She said, I kept, I called him multiple times and he didn't answer. And she said, I was really worried. And she said, very, very late in the night, I heard the garage door open and she said he came into the laundry room area and she described him as being dressed in all black head to toe. And she was shocked. And and when he got into the laundry room, he started taking off his clothes, his hat, his shirt, his pants, and he carried a duffel bag with him. And she said he put all of his clothes into the washer and then he dumped the duffel bag, all, all the contents of the duffel bag into the washing machine also, and then walked away. And she said she just didn't know what was going on. And she looked into the washing machine and she said there were women's clothes that weren't hers. Mm. And she said, I just, she said, I just felt sick and, and was, was terrified. And she said, then Drew came back to her and said, Stacy, you know what I did. And, and she goes, what are you talking about? And he, she said, he said that multiple times, you know what I did. And she insisted, I don't know what you did. I, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then she's, they sat down together and she said, he had a very serious look on his face and a convert, he had a conversation with her and he said, Stacy, really soon the police are going to show up here and they're going to ask you a lot of questions. And it, this is what she relayed to me. She said, he told her, if you say what I tell you to say, this will be, and I quote, the perfect crime. Wow. And she said she was terrified, didn't know what to do. And remember at the time she was probably about 23. I think she was 23 when she was murdered. Or, or disappeared, I should say, uh, presumed dead at the hands also of Drew Peterson, because she disappeared two months after she disclosed that to me at Starbucks. Never been found still. Wow. That's a lot. It is a lot. And I'm thinking, as a pastor, you're sitting there thinking you're going to talk to her about marriage problems. And now you're just hearing this this confession of murder. Yeah. I remember when I was watching this show, how emotional you were and you were telling Marsha, you didn't feel prepared to handle this. So tell me about that feeling of being unprepared and what specifically did you not know how to do? Even, even now, <laughs> there's never a time that I can talk about this without it, it hitting me in a new way. I remember at first just asking her questions and I said, what do you want me to do with this? Because I really had no idea what to do. I had no idea what to do. And she said very, very, very clearly, she said, Neil, I don't want you to do anything. I just want you to know. And she just looked at me and I perceived her look as just, it was a knowing look. I believe that she felt like she was doomed. I believe that she felt like she had a predator that was never, ever going to let her go. Uh, she said, how do you get away from the police? And this is her husband. What do you do? What do you do when your abuser is a police officer? Police officers already know, like all these places that, that regular people don't know in a town, all these secret locations, and they just, they just know a lot of things. And they, they know, uh, they, they've investigated criminals and they just have all these ideas. And she really believed she didn't have anywhere to go. So I, when I asked her, what do you want me to do with that? And she said, I just want, I don't want you to do anything. I just want you to know that's what I did. And I didn't feel great about it, to be honest. I, I felt really horrible. I felt like there's got to be something that I can do. But I also know that I don't live with her. She, she lives with this guy. And, and this guy, by all of her accounts, is a really bad man. And, and he can do a whole lot of bad things. And I, and in my mind, I thought, if I do something against her will, then what happens? Like, what happens to her? I, I, I didn't see any way out. I didn't know what to do. I didn't have, 
connections to shelters. I didn't have training in, in counseling specific to this. Even though I've got a master's degree in counseling from a seminary, I didn't know what to do because I didn't understand the complex dynamics of abuse. So I sat with it. I told my wife. My wife is the only one that I had told. And she said, I don't think you do anything, she said, because what, what, what happens if you say something and they don't believe you and then they confront him and then what she's saying is true and, and then he... What is he make her disappear too? make it look like she died in an accident. I just remember feeling completely conflicted and also like my hands were tied. And I felt like that's just not enough. To this day, when I look back, I just desperately wish that I had some just simple training to understand these dynamics so I could have done something different. Leslie, I know I sent you the link to that show and said, you have to watch this. I did watch it. Tell me what your thoughts were when you were watching him as a pastor and just watching this story. You know, I have had my own regrets in my counseling ministry of what I wished I would have known, like trying to counsel the marriage when the marriage is so toxic. You can't put together a healthy marriage when one of the people or both of the people are unhealthy in different ways or whatever. And so I think I had a lot of empathy for you, Neil, that what would I have done if someone had disclosed to me? I did have a client who disclosed to me that she discovered on her husband's computer research that he was doing. And he was a very top level scientist for a big name corporation. He was very smart. And he was researching how to murder your wife without getting caught. And um, that terrified both of us. And so we did develop a safety plan for her to exit the marriage as anonymously and secretively as she could and you know get her bank accounts out of there and do all she needed to do to get out as quickly as possible without him knowing um and then that became very scary for me because he was somebody in my church and i wow. thought he knows she's seeing me and she disappears into hiding right. and he, he i know he's going to blame me so there's all kinds of emotions yeah. that come up when you are working with this population are they going to come after me? Are they going to harm me? Um, you know, am I going to violate confidentiality? All of those kind of things. Yes. And so it's so important that we get some training as counselors, as pastors. One in four Christian women report being in an emotionally destructive marriage. And we read every single day about a woman and maybe her children being killed in the news. I think it's time that pastors and counselors understand that this is not a once in a lifetime situation. This happens to many women in the church and we need to be equipped better to deal with it. Oh, Leslie, I, I echo every single thing that you said. It's, and, and also thank you for your kindness. I appreciate that so much. <laughs> I certainly have had times when I've looked back at, at how I responded and not been very kind to myself. It's hard not to, to deal with significant feelings of failure and regret. And I'm trying to, I, I've tried to learn over the years how to detangle the, the feelings of sadness that, that I, of what I didn't know and, and looking at myself more harshly than I believe the Lord would have me look at myself um, and, and always be on a course, a trajectory to, to learn and, and to figure out how to do better and for every other victim that, that I sit down with in my life. Neil, if you could have a do-over with Stacy, what do you wish you had known and how would you handle that differently? I wish that I had uh, developed a relationship with an agency in the area, uh, like Mutual Ground is a great one. Uh, there's one up north that I've done some speaking for called The Safe Place. They are so well-equipped to deal with victims of domestic violence. They do such a good job and they are desperate to connect with pastors who are ready to be humble and learn. I, I can't overemphasize the need for pastors to connect with shelters in your area. Uh, like Leslie said, you know, they're, they're, this is an epidemic. Like this is, this is truly something that's happening in the church, outside of the church, for the religious, the non-religious, everybody. So many women are affected by this. Your moms are affected. Your daughters are affected by it. Uh, the people that you care about in your life 
are affected by the epidemic of domestic violence, connect with a local shelter and invite them in to speak to your congregation. That's one thing that I'd say. A second thing that I'd say is become well-versed enough on the subject of domestic violence to do a sermon in October for Domestic Violence Awareness Month um, and put up signs in the bathrooms where you meet for women to, specifically to women. Of course, men can be victims too. Uh, one in, I believe one in seven men will be a victim of, of uh, abuse in his lifetime. Uh, it's one in three to one in four women. So there, it's just a, it's, it's a sizable difference, but it's true. It could be true for both. Make your church a safe place. Uh, make it a place where um, uh, you're always learning as a pastor. You're taking a deep dive into theological concepts that maybe you thought you've settled on, specifically divorce. I know that is a really difficult thing for a, a lot of us to talk about. Um, and it was a lot more difficult for me to talk about when I first um, had people telling me, well, do you support divorce? That's a weird question for a pastor. That's a, That can be a, a, a very tense moment. And, and over time, I've done a deep dive on it to, to understand uh, what I believe the Lord says throughout the whole of Scripture, not, not taking one passage, oftentimes out of context, and, and applying that in a blanket way to situations to uh, not allow divorce uh, for abuse. I believe wholeheartedly that God supports women leaving abusive marriages, period. That is, uh, that's a place that's been a journey for me to come to, but I openly share that. One main reason is that I want women to know that God is for them and not against them. And he values them more than the institution of marriage. He values them more than any other thing. Like people are the church. Jesus loves and died for the church. Victims sitting in your church are, are people that Jesus wants you to stand with and lift up. We've got to do better. So those are a few things that I would do. Yeah, that's such a good thing. I think that pastors sometimes, you know, kind of feel like either this isn't a big deal problem. I don't really need to learn about this or I'm scared to learn about this because then I'll be accountable to do something and I don't know what to do and I don't have the resources and we don't have the equipment in the church to do all that. And they don't have to be either. What they have to do is be aware of what they don't know. Yes. have people in their world that can help them and guide them if a situation that comes up that's dangerous for safety issues to where to consult with or refer a woman to, but really understand that God's heart is for the oppressed. God's yes. heart is for a woman who's in a hard time. All of scripture is geared for the protection of women, even in a patriarchal culture. Yeah. God, the Old Testament has lots of places for women's safety when a husband might toss her out because mm -hmm. he didn't like her, God's saying, hey, don't do that if you're not going to give her a document of divorce so that she's right. free to remarry because she couldn't just go get a job. She needed right. that male support. And so God is always orchestrating his law to protect the victim, the vulnerable, the mm. oppressed, um, and is always stating in the scripture that he's against the oppressor. But I think I'd love to talk a little bit with you as a pastor. I think that there's a couple of places where, especially with the relationship of marriage, might be different if a person came in and said, my dad's doing this to me or my neighbor's doing this to me. Church right. would have a better idea of boundaries and the ability to say no. But there's a couple of scriptural principles, Neil, that I think are really important as a pastor for you to, to talk to our audience about, because I think this is where women get really confused by their pastor. And one of them is the whole topic, God hates all divorce. And he doesn't, he hates certainly some divorce, but he values your safety and your sanity. You right. are important as an individual, not the yes. institution as much. But I think the other whole topic around this idea is the whole area of suffering. Yeah. That somehow suffering in an abusive marriage is a noble sacrifice for mm. Jesus. How would you unpack that for someone who's struggling with that or a pastor who says, well, you know, we are called to suffer and, you know, Jesus gave up his life and all of those kind of passages that we mm -hmm. value and suffering is a noble virtue in the right context. So how would you Absolutely. take that apart for, for Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, this is great. Thank you for bringing that up. The first one you mentioned was uh, the Malachi uh, verse about God hates divorce. It, it's, it's really interesting because uh, that, that passage people, almost every pastor knows that they, they, they know that part. They, they don't know what it says next. It says, it actually says God detests a man who cloaks himself in violence. Um, the passage is actually condemnation on men 
who were trying to get rid of, of women that they just decided they didn't like. And, and at the time of Jesus, uh, hundreds of years later, uh, the rabbis, there were two schools, and, and one school was, was saying that you can divorce a wife not just for infidelity, but for any cause. So, so if, if she didn't cook your dinner to your liking, you could get rid of her. If she was too old, you could get rid of her. If you just decided you didn't like her today, you could get rid of her. So, so it was, it really was a school of rabbis that was twisting God's heart and his intentions and using it against victims rather than what God intended it for, which was to lift up victims and protect victims from abusers. So that's the first thing. Like, I think that's super important to, uh, to understand. There's so much more to unpack around divorce. And really, I think that it has to do with having a holistic theology based on all the passages in scripture, the whole of scripture that talks about divorce, not just Matthew 19, where Jesus says, you know, uh, nothing except for he wasn't invalidating passages in Exodus and Deuteronomy. He was assuming that everybody there knew that those were God's law. So you have to look at the whole of it. Um, and he certainly wasn't invalidating what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians about abandonment. So there are multiple reasons for divorce that are that are sanctioned by God for the protection of victims. So that's the first thing. The second thing that you said is so the, like a theology of suffering. I, I feel like this theology of suffering that we have, it's almost as if we feel like we have to put victims back, like put victims on a cross. And I'm, that might sound, that might sound callous or, or kind of like that might be worded too strongly, but Jesus died on the cross for, for all of our sins. No one has to be placed in suffering under the hands of an abuser who, by the way, is doing something against God's will. God never wants us to, to be in a position where we're like, it's like a holy thing to enable someone who is doing something bad to you. There's nothing good uh, about uplifting someone and saying, well, submit to the, the evil that this person's doing to you, whether you're at work, whether it's... Uh, uh, familial abuse, whether it's uh, domestic violence, like there's nothing wholly intrinsically about uh, lifting someone up who's doing bad things to others. God does not enable abuse. We should never either. Uh, so I think it's a it's a theology that is often rooted in, in in ideas also related to forgiveness and reconciliation. And and those things happen. Uh, maybe, maybe we can talk about that a little bit too. There's so many so many things that I think. God is inviting us into as people who follow Jesus. I think he's inviting us into a new way of looking at these things. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that, you know, I love Jesus's differentiation between two different groups of people. He says, when the Romans were oppressing the Jews, and he said, hey, if a soldier slaps you on one cheek, turn the other. If a soldier forces you to walk one mile, then do the next right thing and walk to. In other words, I think what Jesus was restoring to people who were victims is their agency. Yes. You can choose how you respond. Just like Martin Luther King said, when someone treats you like a nobody, you can act like a somebody. Yes. But this is a stranger relationship. This is someone who you're not in having to kiss. You're not having to live with. You're not having to have any kind of interaction with. This is a stranger. Peter says the same thing to slaves. Hey, when your master treats you treacherously, you still have choices on how you're going to respond to that. You can be the bigger person. So I think there is a piece of how do I want to show up here and what's the right thing to do? And it's not right. to lay down your life for someone to continue to abuse you if right. you have a choice. Yes. Going back to the other passage, though, in Matthew 18, where Jesus says, if your brother or sister, this is a relationship that you're in, mm -hmm. sins against you, go talk to them. And if they refuse to listen. Well, then the relationship dynamic breaks apart. There's no more safety. Treat them as you would a pagan, a tax collector. Right, You're right. not required to be in a relationship with yeah. someone who continues to sin against you, including yeah. a spouse. No, you're not. And this idea of forgiveness, you know, I, I always hear the 70 times seven brought up with, with, around this. And it's like, so what does that actually mean? You know, you know, I see this in, in abuse forums on Facebook, and I see people have these ideas that they've heard. I, I don't believe it all that God's intention is to live in unforgiveness. So I'm going to be really clear that forgiveness is, is always a good thing 
And it's also because it, it, it's for you to, to release someone from the desire that you might have for retribution, because that's that's a completely unhealthy, toxic thing. It will become toxic. Um, but but that does not equate to reconciliation. So I think a lot of times we hear we have to forgive, we have to forgive, and we're like, oh great God, you're putting more on me. You're you're adding something else to this already huge burden that I have. When God's like, no, this is actually for you, and I don't expect you to then you can't reconcile with someone who is unwilling to repent of what they've done. And repentance doesn't look like tears. It doesn't look like sorries. It actually looks like changed behavior over an extended period of time. And the reality that I've seen is a lot of abusers refuse to ever acknowledge that they're wrong. And if you refuse to acknowledge that you're wrong, there is zero chance. I would never say to a victim, you should do this. That that would be the worst thing, worst thing. So it's or just- Or even having hope that God's gonna change him. God right. doesn't change anybody who refuses to repent. Right, I completely agree. And I would say uh, of all the people that I've seen, I think I've, I think I know of one person who's actually done the hard work that it takes to change. And he did it over an extended period of time, fully, fully respecting the boundaries that his victim had set up for him. You know, Neil, I was teaching a class to pastors on this, and this is the illustration I used to kind of maybe open their eyes to this. I said, you know, if you're in the parking lot and someone crashes into your car at church and they were, you know, they didn't even mean to, they were like, on their phone and they just didn't see you and they crashed into their car, your car and your radiator is blown up and your tires flat and you've got a cut on your head and they jump out of their car and they run over to you and they say, oh my gosh, pastor, oh, I am so, so sorry. But love covers a multitude of sins and love keeps no record of wrongs. And so thank you so much for forgiving me. And they jump back in their car and they drive off. That Ooh, isn't repentance. Good. So no care for the impact you've caused another person, even if you didn't mean to do it. Right. No impact for the harm you've caused, the damage you've done is a huge red flag. Like, why don't you get over it? You need to forgive and for all that entitlement demandingness of a woman right. to bond is not God's plan. It, it's it's not God's plan at all. And and the danger is that as churches, we have uh, as churches and leaders, we have at least a perceived authority with people who are coming and entrusting their stories to us. And that's why it's absolutely incumbent upon us not to further victimize victims. We cannot say things about, well, here's what you need to do. Here's what you should do. Well, you have to forgive. Those are, those are thoroughly unhelpful conversations to have. We need to start with, I believe you. Yes. That's what we need to start with. It's not, uh, it's not, well, let me investigate it further and, and we'll see, or, well, he never treated me that way. So I, you know, I, it's hard for me to believe that because Bob's such a nice guy. It's like, no, uh, there's a reason. There's a reason that it, it's that way because abusers tend to groom communities and communities it, like churches are the easiest ones to groom because we talk about things like forgiveness and reconciliation. And we don't always know exactly, we don't always capture well the heart of Jesus for his people. So we inadvertently are victimizing victims we're doing the work of secondary abuse that goes hand in hand with what the abuser has already done, which further steals the voice of their victim. We should be amplifying, centering the voices of victims, not shutting them down. Absolutely. And in addition to what you just said, I'm sure you've experienced this as well. But when a woman begins to realize and start to say, wow, I don't think God does want me to be treated this way. And she starts saying, no, I can forgive or I'll work on that, but I'm not letting him move back home or I'm not going to counseling together with him or I'm not willing to follow the church's treatment plan. Oftentimes in my experience, Neil, Neil she's treated as the villain. Now she's the villain, yeah. the hard-hearted one, the one who's not listening to church yes. discipline. And he becomes the victim right. of her hard-heartedness. And the whole church support rallies around this yeah fearful man who I just want my family back. I just want my yeah. marriage back. And they're giving him all kinds of support. And she's kicked out of the church. She's disciplined. She's shunned. And right. it's unbelievable to me, the blindness of what's going on in leadership. It's just a classic thing that happens in organizations. Uh, like, like I said, it, abusers, abusers groom organizations. And, and ultimately what that means is it's very intentional. It's like what they're doing is on purpose. 
they didn't fall into this. They're not, it's not an anger issue. No, it's actually a very controlled issue. And how do you know that? Because they're not walking around acting crazy at work. They're, they're, they're not uh, treating their boss with contempt. Uh, they, they go to church and they might be a, a deacon or an elder. Uh, they, they might be the pastor. They could be in positions of, of great authority and still be treating the person that they're supposed to love more than anyone else behind closed doors in the worst possible way. Well, just like Drew Peterson, I mean, as a police officer, yeah. and it's hard to look at a police officer and think he's abusing his wife because they're supposed to be the good guys, right? Exactly, exactly. That's why we have to be open to this shifting paradigm, this this new information that tells us like, hey, there are certain professions that abusers are drawn to. It's crazy, but it, it has to do with this idea of I, I'm going to feel powerful if I'm in it. And and police officers are in the top 10. So are pastors, by the way. Yes. Uh, so are doctors and CEOs and firefighters in the military. Those are like the top ones. Why would that be? Because abusers want to wield power and control so that they can control another person. That's the definition of abuse. Controlling another person, that, that's what it's all about. It's not about anger. It's not about anger management. Um, it's not about, I, I, well, I lost it. No, everyone loses it. But there's this pattern of behaviors that's designed to control another person. That's what abuse is. That's why it's different. I had a conversation with an abuser once and he was telling me just that, like, I just lose it. I can't help it. And so I said to him, so how many people have you killed? And he said, no one. And I said, how many people have ended up in the hospital? Well, no one. So obviously you do control it yes. because if you were so out of control that you just couldn't help yourself. Yeah. And so he was like, oh, you know, he just wasn't going to play that game with me. You have control. Right. You absolutely oh. know what you're doing and you absolutely know how much you can do before you're going to get in trouble. Oh, totally. And, and the other thing, what, one of the things that I've said to, to victims, because they're like, well, I think he's just angry. He's just dealing with stuff from childhood. Well, here's the reality. All of us have things to deal with from childhood. And that doesn't mean that because you were abused, you become an abuser. It doesn't mean that. that that's sort of this fraternity mentality, this pledge period mentality that because it was done to me, I'm going to do it to these other people. Uh, that's not always the case. So these are, these are really, really important things to talk about in the church. When you were talking with Drew, did you see that desire for control? What was his demeanor like? And what was your impression of him? So I have so many impressions, but one just popped into my mind. So I'm just going to go with it. He wanted to meet with me separate one night. And he asked me if he could take me on a ride along in his police car. And I was just like, yeah, let's do it. So I, I remember walking out of the church and he picked me up in front and he's like, yeah, I just, you know, just wanted to share some stuff. You know, I know Stacy's met with you individually and I just wanted to have the chance too. sounds fair. So uh, we're, we're driving around town. And, and one thing that I noticed is that he knew every nook and cranny uh, of Bolingbrook, Illinois. Like I was shocked. Like we were driving down areas that I'd never seen before. I'm like, wow, it, that just sort of like took me by surprise. We drove around. At one point, we drove to the local airport where he has uh, an ultralight, sort of like sort of an airplane aircraft. And we're driving along like right by his aircraft. And 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 he was basically saying, yeah, that, you know, I fly this. That's what I really enjoy. Maybe we can do that sometime. OK, so we leave there and he goes, well, Neil, um, you know, I really wanted to talk to you about Stacy. She's really been acting crazy recently. And immediately I had a red flag. I thought, eh, I don't like that. This feels weird to me. I would never say that about my wife. I would never say that. That's just very degrading language. He goes, she's just acting crazy. And I just looked at him and he goes, he looks at me and he was looking for agreement. And I, I feel almost embarrassed to say this, but he said, you know how women are at that time of the month? And I just went, oh, and I looked at him and I'm like, yeah, not going there. And I, I said that to him and he really quickly backed off and he said, well, I was just looking for help. You know, I, I'm just, this is so difficult for me and I was just looking for help, but okay. And then he got a little bit distant and I, in moments, I would feel like I was someone he was trying to pull in and impress. And when I resisted that, and I did that on a couple of moments, that was one of them in that ride along. When I resisted him, 
I remember feeling like I was being punished with an icy coldness. And I actually had a moment when I was with him that I, I said, you know what, I've been gone long enough. I need to let my wife know where I was. And I did that because I just had a weird feeling that he was driving me away from other people. As we, we actually parked in this little forest preserve and it was getting dark and there weren't any cars around. And I had this weird feeling inside, like, I don't know what it is, but I'm not very comfortable being here. I don't know what he's doing. And at the very least, I, I believe he was trying to intimidate me and it worked. It was weird. So I texted my wife and I said, hey, Brandy, just want to let you know, this is where I am. And I'm with Drew Peterson from church. And I think, I, I don't even remember if she responded, but I just kind of wanted to get that on record by text. Just the weirdest feeling. So he could be extremely charming uh, on that same ride along. He said, oh, you must be hungry. It's dinner time. Let, let's grab some food. So we pulled in. I remember pulling into the Taco Bell drive-thru and I started to get my wallet out and he goes, oh, no, 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 no. You're helping me. This is on me. So, so it was this push-pull, warm, cold. And now that I understand dynamics of, of abuse, I, I recognize this was just a tiny fraction of the things that his wife, Stacy had experienced with him for years. Yeah, I've experienced that as well. And I think it's so important to pay attention to those little yeah. signals. But unfortunately, so often we get swept into their charm right. um, and then think he's not capable of being the person she's described. She is crazy. And we start believing that narrative. Yes. Well, may, may I add one more thing about that? Uh, what you just said, Very. that's a very important note that people get swept kind of into their current and, and they start to like them. They start to believe them no matter what they say, because they do tend to be charming people. The first interview that I did around this case was with a Fox News uh, personality uh, on the national news. And I sat down with her and she looked at me and she said, I've interviewed OJ Simpson and I've interviewed Drew Peterson. And she said, and I actually said to Drew Peterson's face, she said, I believe that you've killed multiple women. And she said, and I still enjoy hanging out with you. And I'm trying to make sense of that. Wow. And that was so well said. And this was, you know, this woman has a, she, she's, she's an attorney. <laughs> she's really sharp, but she recognized that there was a charm in this person and she didn't know what to make of it. She she recognized that weird feeling that, that you get in, in the presence of abusers often. Yeah, and I think this is so important as we are talking to church leaders or counselors who hasn't been charmed by someone in their office, that they're fun, they're funny, they're witty, they're kind to us in terms of right. flattering. But charm and character are very different. We sort of ascribe good personality qualities or good attributes to someone who's charming, who may be quite sinister and yes. evil, and they don't have good character qualities. And so it's really so instructive, even in the news. So the church mm -hmm. two movement has begun to scream out victims mm -hmm. are tired of waiting for their pastors to notice and to help them and to say, we're going to protect you. And so the victims are now saying, my pastor abused me or my pastor didn't listen or my church yes. failed me. And I think, you know, all the recent scandals of our leadership between Bill Hybels and Ravi Zacharias and others, whatever context they've been abusive. Mm -hmm. I'm still amazed that churches are still swept into the narrative of the lie instead of saying, whoa, we need a whole overhaul in the way we look at things. Yes, it's a, it's a huge problem. I think for a lot of leaders, it's really scary to do that because I think they're afraid of what they'll find. And I think some of them are afraid of what people will discover about them. So it's, it's, it's for, for a lot of people, unfortunately, it's easier to, to sort of look the other way and say, I'm too busy for that, or it's not in my church, do all this deflecting instead of slowing down and saying, what would God actually have us do and have pastoral hearts for the people? Um, I don't think we need a whole ton of, of great leaders. I think we've seen what happens when, when leadership's the focus. I think we need people who care about people to be pastors and churches. And if you, if you prioritize people, um, it doesn't matter how big your ministry gets, God will honor what you've done uh, because you're honoring the people he cares about. These are hugely important issues. I've met with a whole lot of victims in the church as well of some of the very people you just mentioned. And um, I know some of these people, their stories are horrific and their trauma runs deep. It is absolutely essential 
for us as leaders in the church to do it differently. I believe God has raised up victims uh, to unfortunately be the ones that have to lead through their own trauma and their own pain because there haven't been enough leaders that have said enough. We have to look at our own church, at our own leadership, at our own pastor, at our own elders, and we have to do something different. We still can do that. That's the invitation, I believe, from God today for church leaders. It's not too late. You might have done it wrong. Own what you've done wrong and get on a course to do better. I think that's such a, a noble thing to own what you've done wrong, even as a leader. You know, when I realized I had made some mistakes, it's like, I'm going to talk about these because it's it's embarrassing to say as a clinician mm-hmm. or a therapist that you didn't see something or you diagnosed it runway. When I say diagnosis determines treatment plan. So you diagnose this marriage as the common yeah. cold of marriage problems and it's really mm-hmm. dying of lung cancer and you didn't see it, yes. but you gave them good biblical antibiotics that right. didn't fix it, but you right. think this treatment plan is going to work or it should yeah. work because it's based on God's word, but it's yeah. not going to fix the problem because you're trying to solve the wrong problem. Right. And so how might you as a pastor, as a person who has woken up to this, has realized this, how might you be able to be an influence to other pastors, to other counselors, to seminaries? What's been your experience of them listening to you about this story? It's been varying. I would say initially I was a lot more hopeful. (laughs) Like, I hate to say it like that, but initially I think I was a little bit naive. And I thought that once people realized this was a significant issue, you know, with the Me Too movement and the Church Too movements, which a lot of pastors hate both of those. Um, I'm not one of those. I I think it's incredible that that victims are finally getting voices. Uh, But I really thought that once pastors became more aware that that there'd be this sweeping movement to deal with abuse, but I think I was thinking, I was I was thinking along the lines of what I took. I didn't know what to do, and I thought, well, then I learned, and now I do differently. So it hasn't been really as great as I'd hoped for. I, I think there are uh, pastors who are out there who want to, w- would do something, but they're really busy. I, I had a really good pastor tell me. He said, Neil, I love that you're doing what you do to help victims. He said, but I'm really more into evangelism. And this is a good guy. And I'm just like, how do you separate evangelism from caring for the oppressed? I can't do it. I don't believe it's biblical too. And I think our words fall painfully short and and they sound quite trite if we talk about this Jesus who came to save and we don't offer refuge to victims. It, it It doesn't line up to me. So I think we have to have a more integrated theology and practice. Have you had any inroads into seminaries in the area, you know, some of the big evangelical seminaries or the Christian seminaries in even in the Chicagoland area. Some have done little partnerships where at least they're they're open to, you know, having conversations. Um, But I haven't seen a a major movement yet. I know some seminaries out there are are doing good work and I'd love to connect with them. Um, One is right here in my area. It's called Northern Seminary. And and I know they're doing a whole lot. And I would love, like, if any of you guys are are, are listening to this, I would love to connect with you uh, on on more levels. I'm right around the corner from you. But but a lot of them, uh, a lot of them have been a little bit on the quieter side. So I'm not, I'm not condemning them for that. I certainly don't know all the reasons why they might not respond to that. Busyness can be one of them, but I'm just here to say as a pastor that that if anybody out there that's listening that's interested in having conversations that that will be hard. These aren't easy conversations, but if you're interested in having those, I'm a pastor who will be willing to have that with you without condemnation. Um, I'm not here to shame any pastors. What I'm saying, I'm here to invite people. I'm invite people into something that I am confident is the heart of God. How might they contact you if they wanted to have that conversation? I can think about 2000 women who would say, I'm going to give this to my pastor to listen to. (laughs) And they might just want to have that conversation. How might they? Yeah. Well, on social media, I'm on pretty much everything. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'm most active on Twitter. You can find me at at Neil Shorey, N-E-I-L 
S-C-H-O-R-I. Um, you can friend me, just send me a message. Let me know that you heard this so I can have an idea of what you're looking for. And I'd love to, I'd love to have more conversation. I I'm very open to this. This is a huge part of the call that God has put on me. It's nothing obviously that I would have ever sought out. It, this found me and I've just said, Lord, what do you want me to do in this? And I believe this is uh, this is what he is doing. He wants to make churches safe for victims because it better reflects his heart. Absolutely. And so we probably have a majority of people listening who have been victims of some sort of abuse, usually emotional, spiritual, sexual, and physical. So what might you say to her as she's listening to this as a pastor? Oh, there's so many things I'd like to say. I would just start with all the things that were done to you are not your fault. Whoever betrayed you, it was their choice. It was their intention. You weren't provocative. You didn't cause this. You didn't drink too much and this is your punishment. You did nothing. You were purely a victim. And I am so, so sorry that that happened. And there are people who will believe you. There are people who will help you get connected and break free from the tragedy of the abuse that you went through. You are not alone. I am sure there are many women who are just sobbing right now as they hear that because they haven't heard that from a pastor, from a man. And I'm so grateful. None of us want mm -hmm. to go through the ugly. And yet you went through something pretty ugly and had to face, I, I, I didn't know what to do with this. And yeah. Stacy disappeared. And I feel really bad about what you had to go through, but I'm grateful that you didn't just shut down and let that be something in the past, but that you carried that forward and said, God, you have a story about this. Mm -hmm. That's going to help other women. And how can I use my mistakes as a way to equip and empower other pastors, other counselors, and women. One of the things that I was very curious about as I was listening to some of your videos is that you developed this procedure of helping a woman document her abuse because during the trial, the defense attorney was trying to say, it was just hearsay that, that Stacy had told you some things. So as a pastor, you're doing some very amazingly cool work for victims. Describe this whole document of abuse that you're using for helping them to feel safer and helping you as a pastor have some credibility in what they've told you if something should happen to them. Yes. Thank you, Leslie. So for about a year and a half to two years after Stacy disappeared, I, I really just prayed and I asked God to bring me someone who could help me understand the dynamics of abuse. And this force of nature named Susan Murphy Milano came into my life on Facebook. Uh, her dad, who was a Chicago police detective, killed her mom and killed himself on the same day. And that's how Susan got into this work. She said I, she was a trader in New York at the time, and she ended up coming home and discovered their bodies. Uh. And, and she said to me, she said, that day I knew that for the rest of my life, I was going to work to save as many victims as I possibly could. Yeah. She messaged me and she said, I, I'm in the Chicago area too. And I saw you on the news and I'd really like to talk to you about something. So I met with her also at Starbucks. And for about three hours, she basically told me all the things that I did wrong in, in meeting with Stacy. And I just remember it was like trying to drink out of a fire hose to take it all in. And at the end, she said, Neil, I really believe that you could be used to help change the culture of churches as it comes to abuse. And, and she said, would you be interested in meeting with me regularly? And I just said, yes. She goes, why would you say yes after I just let you have it for three hours? And I said, well, because I prayed for this. <laughs> and she just goes, okay, that's all you had to say. So just a couple of weeks later, she and I sat down and she had been working on this tool that she called the evidentiary affidavit of abuse. And basically it was a, it's a tool that she created to eliminate the, the issue of hearsay that in, inevitably comes up in trials to keep out victim testimony if something happened to them or they're, they're killed and their voice is gone. She said, I haven't used this tool yet, but it basically helps a victim tell their story and it's done in written form and then a video verbatim of 
of them reading their reading their testimony with uh, details about their abuser, a picture of their abuser, questions about is he a drug user, does he drink alcohol, are there guns in the house, and it just basically establishes their story. And she said, the thing that I'm missing though, and I believe that is going to be the a hugely important piece is that. Your pastoral presence, I think, could be used to really help victims be more comfortable as this is shared. So she came to my church one day with 30 minutes notice. She just she was one of those people that would just inform you of what was going to happen. And you just nodded and said, OK, so she came to my church and she said in, in about 30 minutes, a woman who is also a victim of a police officer is going to come and show up here. And she's been a victim for many years. Her Catholic priest told her to go back to her marriage and submit. And she said, I'm going to give this one more chance to tell my story. And she came in and Susan and I worked together to help her document her story. We used the church to uh, the church video equipment to to uh, record her story. And I am not kidding you. By the time she was done, nothing physically had changed, but her countenance had. She had hope and she started, she was speaking without completely shaking. And I just thought this is an incredible thing. So it is just a way for a victim. It's it's a very hard but cathartic experience for a victim to record their story and then know that in the event that something might happen to them, that their story will be told in a court of law. It's notarized. There are federal judges out there that support this and, and it start, it's starting to it's starting to gain some momentum in the area, but it takes a long time for, for people to see a resource and, and check it out and uh, and use it. Uh, but you can find it at documentTheAbuse.com. I love that. I love that for many reasons. And nobody wants to think that they might be killed. And it's a hard thing to think that way, like, oh, if this happens to me. But what an amazing tool for them to know that hmm. their voice will be heard and their abuser will be held accountable. You've never had to use it, I understand, in terms of in a court since then, right? I haven't. I've certainly helped a lot of victims go through it. And today, anybody's story that has been shared is on a Fortune 500 level server. And, and there actually is the, the woman who is in charge of the organization document the abuse. Uh, her name is Norma Peterson. And if that name sounds like Peterson, that is actually Drew Peterson's sister-in-law. Uh, because she was close friends with Stacy Peterson. So she and I have worked together over the years and she's doing great work. That's amazing. Thank you so much for being with us and sharing your heart, Neil, and your story. And, and I'm so grateful. I am just so thankful that you had me on and I'm so thankful for the work that you're doing. It's invaluable. What you're doing is offering a, a, a cold drink of water in a desert. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I'm so, so grateful to be able to spend time with you today. Thank you for listening to Relationship Truth Unfiltered. Be sure to check out our show notes page where we have a list of incredible resources from Neil and Leslie for women in abusive relationships, including a book by Neil's mentor, Susan Murphy Milano, which will give you very practical tools to get safe. Remember, your God-given life, it matters to God. Until next time, may God bless your relationships with him, with yourself, and with others.